you doing, everybody? This is Rabbi David M. Cohn. I'm excited to be here with you today to introduce this brand new podcast. This podcast is actually going to be built around my brand new book, which is entitled We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose, that was just released in January of 2016. We're almost there. Well, where are we going exactly? What does that mean? We're almost there. That means something different for many, many people. My wife is actually a trained doula, and she's also training now to become a midwife. And in her training, she taught me the following mantra. The mantra is, hold the vision, trust the process. Everybody has a vision, somewhere they want to get to, some destination they want to accomplish, whether it's in their personal life, whether it's in their professional life. It could be a dieting goal. It could be anything, right? And many times it takes us much longer than we had anticipated or hoped to reach our destination. And in the context of birthing, when a woman is trying to give birth, so the process can be excruciating, very, very painful. I don't know personally, but uh, I'm told, I've observed, it's excruciatingly painful. And a woman in particular who desires a natural birth and doesn't want to have to use any type of medical intervention, so such a woman is taught to hold the vision and to trust the process. The vision is to go through the process, to have a natural birth, to be able to rejoice with that newly born child, but trust the process. The pain that is part of that process, that's indicative and reflective of her body preparing itself to release the child, so that's actually a good sign. That's a sign, the pain is a sign that she is reaching, getting closer to her intended destination. So hold the vision and trust the process. So. Using that mantra, I built my book, We're Almost There, in the sense that we're all traveling different pathways, we're in different places, and it takes time, it takes a lot of patience, and we have to persevere, and there are all different types of obstacles that interfere with us, that get in the way of our intended goal. And I wrote a book that focuses on different areas of life, it focuses on how we interact with the community, how we interact with our family, with our friends, how we interact with our children in terms of parenting. I have a child with special needs, and I speak a lot about that, talk about marital harmony, talk about carpe diem, seizing the moment, living in the moment, paying attention. And I also talk about strengthening faith. The book itself has an approbation and an introduction, basically, from Professor Robert George of Princeton University, the foremost Christian thinker in the United States of America. And he really articulates in the foreword that this book is really for all peoples of faith, anybody who's interested in being inspired and strengthening faith in challenging times. This is a book for you, and hopefully this will be a podcast for you. And in the context of this podcast, you're going to, in the context of the book, you'll be introduced to various personalities that have had a profound impact on my life, that have impacted my thinking, and that have helped me get through difficult times. One of the very big themes of this book is the concept of vulnerability. Vulnerability is, a, is an evil word. People don't like to make themselves vulnerable. People are very, very afraid to really reveal their inner thoughts, their inner feelings. It's not something that people are comfortable with, living in space that's uncomfortable. 
Vulnerability is big, and it's going to be big in, this, in the context of this podcast because we're going to be talking to incredibly accomplished individuals. We have a very special guest today that you'll be hearing from shortly that actually wrote a book on overcoming obstacles and challenges and how very famous people overcame their obstacles and their challenges. So an overlying theme throughout my book is the idea of making oneself vulnerable, and that vulnerability is actually a strength, not a weakness. It's often perceived to be a weakness, but in fact, it's actually a great strength. It struck me as I was reflecting on my book that I was influenced and impacted by many incredible personalities in the process of my life to this point, to this date, and how they impacted my ability to kind of overcome obstacles and to hold my vision and to trust my process and to remind myself that I'm almost there in terms of the destinations that I want to reach and accomplish in my life and, and for you as well, the listener. There are various people, I'm sure, that have inspired you, that carry you forward, members of your family, friends, teachers, role models. They're all different types of people that inspire us and help us to reach our intended destinations and goals. In my book, you can and will, if you choose to read the book, which I hope you will, you will meet me, you'll meet my wife and her, up, her upbringing in a European country, in Vienna, Austria, and the impact that that had on her life. You'll meet my son, Yedidya, who has Down syndrome, an almost 11-year-old precious boy who struggles with obstacles every single day with inherent limitations and how he overcomes. You meet a taxi driver from the tiny little state of Israel in the Middle East and how he profoundly impacted my life and carried me hours away from where I thought I was going and opened up brand new vistas for me in my life. You meet my sister-in-law, who has donated various uh, parts of her body to save other people's lives. You're going to learn about three very precious Jewish souls, three boys, Ayal, Naftali, and, and Gilad, three boys who were kidnapped and ultimately murdered in the tiny state of Israel in 2014, the summer of 2014, two years ago, and how they profoundly impacted and transformed the Jewish community, which is a community that I'm very proud to be a member of. You meet a young woman whose life was cut short at the age of 17 and the impact that she had on those around her. You meet an elderly, an elderly scholar, a rabbi, a great sage in his 80s, as well as the first lady of the United States, Michelle Obama, her husband, President Barack Obama, as well as the former majority leader of the House of Representatives, Eric Cantor. There are a myriad of personalities in my book that have profoundly impacted my life and have helped me on my life journey, whether it was a comment they made, thought leadership, or actual personal interaction. In my book, we're almost there. You can be encouraged and you can partake in their wisdom and see how it profoundly impacted my life. It's so key in the life, the everyday life in which we live, to have patience, to be patient, right? Things are not always exactly on schedule the way we want them to go. Just yesterday morning, I was lying in bed, getting ready for my day, and all of a sudden my wife comes and she asks me to do something that actually set my entire trajectory of my day completely off schedule. 
And I was reflecting afterwards how we always have to kind of be prepared and we have to be ready for things to kind of get out of kilter. Because part of the trajectory and process of life is to appreciate and to understand that things don't always go the way that we hope that they're going to go, and we don't have control. We really do not have control. And patience is the attitude and the understanding that relinquishing control and almost seeing where life takes me and how I'm going to react to the opportunities that I'm given and where I'm taken as opposed to trying to always dominate and, and call the shots. Part of being patient is to persevere because a lot of times when we're being patient and we're being taken on a pathway that we hadn't intended, so often that's incredibly painful. There's a beautiful story that I once heard about a wonderful sage of the Jewish people that was walking in a European country and he was pulled over by one of the government officials and the government official asked him, excuse me, Rabbi, where are you going? Where are you heading? The rabbi thought for a moment and he said, I don't really know. At which point the government official got very, very upset. You don't know where you're going. You're supposed to be the great leader of these people, the Jewish people, and you don't know where you're going. He grabbed him and thrust him and threw him into prison. He sat there languishing in prison for a couple of days. Subsequently, the government official comes. He says, I don't understand. I asked you where you're going, a very simple question, and you responded that you had no idea. So the rabbi's retort was, I thought I was going to the study hall to study my, my tombs to study my books. I ended up here in prison. So apparently when I told you I didn't know where I was going, I was being truthful with you. And the government official appreciated the keen insight and the wisdom of this sage, of this scholar, because ultimately none of us know where in fact we're going. We read tragic events and occurrences in the news on a daily basis. Things happen, unexpected events, and it's really, a person has to really be able to gird themselves for the, for the struggle and to persevere and to live a purposeful life despite the challenges that he may be confronted with. I just also want to share another brief anecdote before we go on to our, our special guest today who is going to be indicative and reflective of what we're going to be doing in this podcast. We're going to be extracting some ideas from my book, which is available on my website at www.rabbidovidmcohen.com. It's also available on Amazon. So we're going to be taking ideas and personalities from this book and also introducing you to new personalities who have inspired me and have lessons of inspiration, dealing with challenges, dealing with struggle. Hopefully our guests are going to make themselves vulnerable. They're not going to hold back, and they're going to share the opportunities they've had as well as the struggles they've had in terms of reaching their intended uh, destinations in life. There's a famous psychologist, the inventor of something called logotherapy, Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of the death camps in Nazi Germany and invented an entire medium of thought in the realm of psychology. And there's a story told about Viktor Frankl that he was incredibly depressed at a certain point in his career. He wasn't accepted by Freud and the other great thinkers of that period. He had a new idea. They were very much focused on the human drives, the sexual drive, things of that nature, and that defined the human psyche. And he had invented a new concept that it was really more, not so much a visceral, physical type of drive that really uh, inform a person's thinking, but rather it's kind of really more an intellectual, spiritual orientation that really impacts and affects a person. 
But Frankel was an outcast. People didn't really adapt or accept his ideas. And he basically had given up hope. He had quit his professorship in Vienna, Austria, and he was getting ready to move to Australia. And he was packing up his bags, and a woman came out of nowhere, and she sent him regards from a great, also a great scholar from a different world. And he didn't understand how that rabbi in Brooklyn, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, understood or knew that he was dealing with this challenge at that particular moment in time. But at his moment of greatest despair, he gets a message through the conduit of a woman who had a message from this sage from Brooklyn telling him, don't give up, don't give up. And just with those words, at his most difficult time, he kind of got himself together. And because of that, he ultimately was catapulted forward to stay in Vienna, publish his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which ultimately was one of the 10 bestsellers of all time. And all because in his critical moment, when he was about to give up, when he was about to resign himself to being a failure, he got words of encouragement. And I think all of us, what we need in life is a little bit of positivity, a little bit of vulnerability, and when we make ourselves vulnerable and we trust others with our vulnerabilities, that they embrace us and they give us some encouragement because ultimately we need each other. We have to lean on each other. Part of the process of almost being there is the understanding that we are almost there. We've accomplished a lot. We've all been through what we've been through, and we're on a path and we're on a journey, and we don't want to give up, and we need other people. I get by with a little help from my friends. It was a very popular song back in the day. I understand it had a little bit of a different context than what we're talking about here. But it's, it's crucial to understand that there are many lifelines that we can embrace, that we can grasp, and that we can use to our benefit. In the next few moments, we're going to have a very special guest who's going to be joining me this morning on the podcast here. My good friend Gregory Zuckerman is a special writer at the Wall Street Journal. He's the author of The Frackers, the outrageous inside story of the new billionaire Wildcatters, and also the author of The Greatest Trade Ever, the behind-the-scenes story of how John Paulson defied Wall Street and made financial history. Both of these were New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers. Greg is a special writer at the Wall Street Journal. And besides authoring these two books, he just came out with a brand new book just at the very beginning of May that is really going to be transformative and make a great impact. It's called Rising Above. And it's a book that he wrote with his two teenage sons in tandem together. And they explore the travels of, I think it's 11 or 12 star athletes and the obstacles that they had to overcome to reach their destinations in life to follow their pathway and he had an opportunity to interview them to explore their life journeys and to see how they overcame and it's a fresh brand new book I met Greg two years ago at a conference we were both guest lecturers at this conference and we hit it off subsequently I served as a as a rabbi of a of a major synagogue in on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I had him as a guest lecturer in my synagogue. And now in my current position at the Orthodox Union as a director of synagogues in New York, so uh, it's my great pleasure to be able to introduce you to my friend Greg, who's a best-selling author, reports regularly in the Wall Street Journal, and we're hopefully going to be able to uh, interview him and glean some insights that he learned, both in his own experience as a writer at the Journal, and also in terms of what he's gleaned and what he's learned from working with these famous athletes.
road ahead is paved with possibility, laughter and smiles. When I'm with you, I'm soaring high and free. When you're in my world, I believe in me. I look into your eyes and see that I can be stronger, I can be braver, I can be, I can be anything, anything I wanna be. Oh, anything I wanna be. I have the power, I have the courage. I am a hero. Everything I need is inside of me. Is inside of me. My good friend Greg Zuckerman. Greg is a special writer with the Wall Street Journal, as we mentioned, and actually just wrote a brand new book entitled Rising Above. That actually, Greg, LeBron James is on the cover. Now, I haven't had a chance yet to go through the entire book. I saw some of the characters that you had the opportunity, some of the personalities you had the opportunity to interview. Is LeBron also somebody, or that's just kind of rising above? That's a picture, or he's actually one of the people that's interviewed in the book? Yeah, so he is uh, one of the key characters. There are 11 in the book, and it's, uh, the subtitle is How 11 Athletes Overcame Challenges in Their Youth to Become Stars. So basically, 
my sons and I went out to uh, to speak with them. Some of these people was by phone, some of it was by email, some was in, in person, and um, yeah, they they shared lessons and how they dealt with uh, setbacks and overcame challenges when they were young. So what for like LeBron James, for example? Everybody looks at LeBron. I mean, he's the king. He's the best or the second best maybe right now to Stephon Curry in the NBA. I mean, what kind of challenges did LeBron have growing up? So LeBron um, basically had just a mother growing up, and his father uh, wasn't around, and they ran into some early difficulties. He actually was born into a sort of a middle-class family and had a grandmother around, pretty nice home, but she died at an early age, and the mother couldn't keep the, the home. And between the ages of 8 and 12, uh, LeBron moved, uh, had to move, uh, homes about 10 times. Wow. So okay. the guy was on the run, didn't really have any roots to, to, to know where he could build a life. And it was quite difficult. And what's interesting about him, and I think maybe some other people too in these circumstances, he found a mentor. He found uh, a coach who took him under his wing and helped him and pushed him and forced him to do things like learn to dribble with his left hand and take a layup with his left hand. And he was pretty good early on. He wasn't a, a super-duper star, but he was right. pretty good. And he was right-handed and relying on his right hand. But you, often in life you need some, some mentor, somebody looking out for you. And thank God LeBron uh, found someone. Who was that Who was that mentor? It was a basketball coach? Uh, it was a coach. It was a, a, a coach. There were a few people actually that wanted to help out um, and, and some who offered. But this was a, a coach named Frank Walker who saw a lot of potential in LeBron and felt that LeBron was sort of desperate. Uh, He wasn't really showing up in school half the time, LeBron, and he was not going down the right path in life. So Walker, and this is when when LeBron was nine, so it wasn't like, oh, yeah, he was a high school. Sometimes you see that, a high school superstar, and he's trying to make money off it. It wasn't at all. He was just a nine-year-old. He was just sort of running up and down the court with a little purpose kind of relying on his right hand. So Walker took him under his wing and, and started to kind of begin his education, which ended up helping him later in life. There was a big game we write about in the book where LeBron hit a lefty layup to win the game, win, win a playoff game in Miami. And wow. he on, on, went on TV thanking uh, Frank Walker, who, who <laughs> again, played a huge role, yeah. Amazing. How did you, did you actually speak to LeBron by phone? You no, LeBron, we didn't. Uh, he's, he, there were a couple people in the book who had other projects going on at the time, um, Karan Butler and Dwayne Wade. But everybody else we talked to in person, be it R.A. Dickey or Serge Ibaka, Jim Abbott, a few others, or Tim Howard, who was, was in England playing in England, so we were on the phone with him, and um, Jacques Demare, who's a uh, hockey coach up in Montreal, so we talked to him on the phone. So we either communicated, and Serena Williams and Venus was by email, but most people was in person. Cool. And how did, this, how did this idea evolve? Meaning, I know you've written other best-selling books. You've written those books on your own. They've been more focused on the financial industry. Where did you kind of come up with the idea to write a book with your boys about yeah, sports? Yeah, it was my son's idea. I have a 14-year-old named Eli, and he had the uh, great idea of... We, we always used to talk about stories we'd read here and there about some star who overcame something or had a tough time in his youth, etc. But... He, and, and, and then subsequently with my other son, we, we all came up with the idea of saying, okay, let's put it all together in a book and have one plot, place where people could read about these stories. And what we tried to do is pick one of everything. So, yeah, you have LeBron, whose father ran out and mother was in a difficult situation. And it's a little bit cliched, but it's still a great story. But 
you have others who have physical issues, like Jim Abbott was born with one right. hand, um, Tim Howard with Tourette syndrome and OCD. You've, you have abuse. Um, t- um, Ari Dickey was abused, uh, sexually abused growing up, and uh, that that hockey coach um, I mentioned uh, earlier, Jock Demare. Yeah, right. he was abused uh, physically by his father, and to the point where he couldn't he couldn't concentrate in school, and he couldn't he never learned how to read or write. So he was functionally illiterate as a coach, as an NHL coach, and had to fake it. He had all these cr- crazy ways of tricking people to thinking he could read or write. And finally, at 61, when he retired, he owned up to it, even though his family, his, his own family didn't even know. So each of the players had some different kind of challenge. Sometimes it's racism, other times it's other issues. So again, we tried to pick one of everything to give people a flavor of how people overcome different things. Now, if I, I'm just out of curiosity, like, I guess because you write for the Wall Street Journal, because you're a writer, you've written other books. I mean, could I just go with my boys and write a book? Like, how, you know, how to, is this something anybody could do? Or because of your unique slant and professional accomplishments, it was easier for you to do this with your sons? It was easier for me, although not as easy as I had expected. So I'm sort of used to Wall Street Journal calling people up at Wall Street, and they'll talk to me. They're either because I'm at the Journal or they've heard of me, read my, one of my books or whatever, or I've dealt with them in the past. But um, so I kind of figured with the sports guys, it wouldn't be so hard. But it was was kind of challenging, just because I don't have a name in that world. And it was a question of persuading the agents or the middlemen that uh, is a project that's aiming to help people. And that is the the goal of this book to inspire and motivate and entertain uh, young people and some adults as well. So eventually, they did come around. And the, the thought, the thing that I thought was fascinating is that when we ended up speaking with them. The players love talking to my kids. I mean, yeah. it's one thing for for another adult, you know, how many uh, adult reporters they they deal with them every day of the week. But like Serge Ibaka, he was a center on Oklahoma City, sure. and uh, grew up in the Congo. His mother died at a young age, and father was a political prisoner. The guy was so poor that he had to uh, reinforce the soles of his shoes with cardboard because they were just wow. worn out and he couldn't afford sneakers. So he like when we sat down with him at the hotel. Uh, after a game, Oklahoma City against the Knicks, he put his arm around my kids and uh. gave, gave them life lessons. And, yeah, they like talking to me, but I think they enjoyed a lot more being able to share some lessons about life with the next generation. And my kids were sort of the conduit for that. That's wonderful. That's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Let's talk for just for a minute about Steph Curry because you know, he just won a second consecutive MVP just uh, just yesterday. The guy came back from you know two weeks on the shelf, basically knee injury, ankle injury, and he basically scores an NBA record 17 points in overtime, basically putting an end almost to that uh, second-round series. What was your interaction like with, with Steph Curry? What were some of his challenges, and how did, you, how did he overcome them? Sure. So Steph was an interesting guy. He took some time with me in the locker room uh, after a Knicks game and was really generous with his time, answered a lot of questions, and he, too, had some interesting life lessons, which we share uh, in the book. And Steph, okay, you think to yourself, well, he didn't really overcome that much. His father is Del Curry, right. he was a star. So, but, but he did, because growing up, he wasn't recruited out of high school, and he couldn't even go to Virginia Tech, which is where his father was a superstar, one of the greatest players ever to play at Virginia Tech. And mm-hmm. they wouldn't even take, they wouldn't even recruit Steph, his, his son. Uh, they said you could walk on. In other words, yeah, you can, you can play, but we're not going to give you a scholarship, and we're not guaranteeing you anything. You can try to make the team. So Steph was confident in himself, nonetheless, and he found a school, or a school found him, Davidson, a small liberal arts school. Right. I think it's like 2,800 students, very small. And there was a coach there who believed in him, but it wasn't, it's, it's ironic, it wasn't because 
he saw him shoot or, or anything as dribbling. He had coached Steph playing baseball with his own son years earlier. Really? And he remembered the kind of character he was, a hardworking kid, dedicated kid, good kid. So, and he knew he was a pretty good, pretty good high school basketball player, but... In other words, the kid, was, Steph, was so frail, and he's got that boyish look to him. He still does, so people underestimate him. We have a uh, quote uh, in the book early on where um, a famous uh, a college coach kind of basically said, hey, we had no interest in him whatsoever. I'm, I'm reading from here, Roy Williams, the legendary yeah, right. North Carolina coach. Exactly. He yeah. said, I don't, I don't even remember seeing him uh, during the, the recruitment uh, process. Uh, I do remember when I did, I thought, man, is he little. So people really <laughs> underestimated the guy. And we talk about his struggles on how he really, really recreated himself. He taught, well, really his father helped him with that shot. So most people shoot at the top of their jump. That's sort of how they teach you to shoot, uh, right. shoot a jump shot at the top of your jump. Dell um, and, and Steph created a shot where it's on the way up. So it's got this beautiful arc to a shot, and I don't quite honestly know why other people don't do, do it the same way, but mm-hmm. um, the point being, it wasn't natural. You look at Steph now, and oh, wow, he's a natural talent, and his father was a star, too. He, he did it all himself. He really did, and he forced himself to become a great dribbler, and in college, he was just coming off screens and shooting the ball, mm-hmm. and he didn't have to dribble too much, so you got to give him a lot of credit. I think, look, I think even when he made it to the NBA, even then, I don't think he was, as far as I could recall, he wasn't like a mega star off the bat. Also, I think he continued to evolve and grow even in his seasons in the NBA along with that team. I mean, it's just it's just a, a tremendous lesson that one has to always kind of keep going on their path and, 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 and recognize that you're never there, in, in essence. That's exactly always... right. So, yeah, when he, when he made the NBA, I mean, he was a high draft pick, and people had high hopes from him. But early on, he was good but not great, and he, and he had this chip on his shoulder because he really wanted to be an all-star and we, we, we talked to him about it and he emphasized it when he spoke. He said, yeah, now I'm doing great and I get all the acclaim but just a few years ago, he remembered being crushed that he was left off the all-star team and he basically it was during the, the lockout, he said, alright I'm going to recreate my game and he did all these crazy dribbling drills we write about in the book where he'll take took two different balls behind his back and and, and, and one was strong, was was um, bigger than the other, and just kind of taught himself to be an unbelievable dribbler, so he could get in and out of traffic much mm-hmm. easier. So yeah, like you said, he, it's credit to him, and he, he did it himself. That's great. So if I if I may, Greg, I want to just shift gears for a minute here, or a few minutes, and talk to you a little bit about your work at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I don't, you know, it's obviously, uh, I don't want to make you, you know, you have to be too vulnerable, but one of the themes that we're trying to bring out in this podcast is the idea that vulnerability is really a strength and not a weakness, and that and, and that being able to kind of open up and, and share one's struggles and one's challenges with other people can really inspire and encourage. And I think that's the theme that you bring out in, in, in your most recent book, that people that we look at and we admire, like, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't born that way. And, and, and yeah, it didn't, didn't that, come easy. And, yeah, the, the one thing I have to say, Robert, the, the, the one thing that, that jumped out at me was how each of these guys kind of see their weaknesses as a strength, like you said. So it... it Let's say Tim Howard, he has um, Tourette's and he has OCD, but he has this hyper-focus as a result, and mm. his doctors kind of said, you know, there, there's a flip side to it. So they all kind of did, which was kind of interesting. Interesting. So what would you say, just in terms of your work, how long have you been working, just to love for the listeners to hear, how long have you been working at the Journal? What have been some of your, you know, great challenges, and how have you overcome them in your work at the Wall Street Journal? I've uh, been here 19 years. Oh, wow. And... Um, quite honestly, when I started off, I wasn't a great writer. A lot of, of my my advantage is 
talking to people and, and, and sourcing and um, getting information from people. But my writing was sort of subpar early on, and I did force myself to improve. So it was a question of reading lots of books by really good nonfiction business writers, James Stewart, Brian Burroughs, people like that, and trying to learn from them. So, and it's always a process. And whenever, whatever profession you're in, there's always improvement to be done. So, I, I continue to try to do so. How did you kind of how did you figure out that this was an area of weakness? Somebody pointed it out to you. You just felt it on your own. Both. So when I first my my first job in the industry, I worked for this newsletter. It was, and I had never thought about being a journalist before. I sort of stumbled into it because I love Wall Street and. I took a test. I didn't have any clips, as they, as they say, in our business to show them. So they gave me a leaked, quote-unquote, leaked document. And I wrote this document up, and I thought I did a really good job with it. And I, I interviewed a source, and the source was the guy interviewing me for the job. So he wanted to see how I was on the phone. Mm-hmm. And basically, I got the job. But he, and, and I thought I did a really good job with the writing. He said, nah, your writing's not very good, but we can work on that, Greg. <laughs> so, and we did. And we did. So it was a question of continuing to work on it. And some of it is just style. Some of it is uh, the format. I, I did this um, in, in college and in high school and in grade school. One is taught to write a research report in which you, uh, basically, it's like a pyramid. You slowly build to the end. You, you hit them with a hard conclusion. Uh-huh. And in newspaper writing, it's the complete opposite. We call it an inverted pyramid because people often don't read to the end. Right. So you got to really hit them up high with the most important stuff. So there was some of that, learning that, and just the style and improving as a writer. So there's, there's always improvement. But, yeah, some of it I sensed myself. Some of it was pointed out to me. I hear. That's great. What would you say is the most exciting or the best part of your job at the Wall Street Journal right now? I have an amazing job because I'm a curious person. And if you're curious and you're in a position where I am at the Wall Street Journal, you can f- find things out. So I'll come into the morning, in the, in the morning and I'll hear about an executive who's retired at 58. And we'll write a story. This, this, I'm, I'm thinking specifically it happened uh, a few years ago. There was a company called PIMCO, a big bond firm, where the heir apparent number two guy was 58 named Mohammed Alarian. Uh, up and quit one day, and he wants to spend more time with his family, mm-hmm. ostensibly. But it doesn't make didn't make sense. It right. just didn't make sense. So a colleague and I set out to figure out what really happened, and that's the beauty of being a journalist. You can figure out what's really going on uh, in the world. You're like an investigative, like uh, detective, on some level, right? To some extent, yeah. And what what would you say is the hardest or most challenging part of your job? Um, proving things. There's times when you know something to be true or 90% accurate, but that's not enough for a paper like the Wall Street Journal. So it can be a little frustrating because you're pretty sure of something, but you can't put it in the paper. So there's a process, and you got to get more sourcing and, and more evidence. That would be one of the bigger challenges. So how many stories would you say, like, just never make it to the light of day like that? Like, great story that you know is 90% true, but it just never makes it to the light of day. Um, there's some. It's more so that instead of finishing in a few days, it takes a few weeks. So it just takes more. You go back to drawing board and you try to get more sourcing. Uh, again, my colleague, my colleague and I did that with the, with the BIMCO story and with others. So it's, it's more a question of, of more, putting more work into it. Cool. What's uh, you have any thoughts for what your next book is going to be about? 
Um, we're going to do a female version of Rising Above. There are really? a lot of fe- yeah, there are a lot of female athletes. And but you have the William, you have the Williams sisters already in there, no? We do, but people on the left already have criticized that uh, we've got a, a ten men and one uh. woman in, in the uh, <laughs> okay. in the book, and that's not why we're doing it. There's a, there's, there's a reason. Uh, women, girls uh, are apparently this different different audience, and they'd like a book dedicated to, to female athletes. Uh, so we're going to cool. do one um, with with a bunch of different female athletes focused on them, and then I've got some ideas for uh, nonfiction adult business, but um, I'm not. I'm not at the point where I'm, I'm running it yet, so we'll see. I'm always looking for new ideas, though. If yeah. I have your audience, uh, reach out to me. How do you? I was like, how did you? Like, how did you? You know, figure out who are going to be the characters in this past book, and how do we? How do you? Pin, how do you find out? Like, you just you just Google athletes who struggle. I mean, how do you even pinpoint who the male or female athletes are that you're? You know, that you're targeting. So while I did the writing for this book, for the most part, my sons did a the bulk of that kind of legwork on finding the characters and a lot of it was yeah just googling and looking for stories and searching and um being creative and then you'd they'd go and find who the agents were and the representatives and we'd and i'd go take it from there kind of thing so but again what we tried to do is one of everything we didn't want to have the same kind of story so it's funny we went and talked to a, a soccer player um, named sergio aguero and i think his story is a great story but the publisher thought it was a little too similar to Dwayne wade's story and Dwayne wade dealt with drugs in his neighborhood growing up. He, um, his, he, 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 we tell a story about how he came home one day at six years old and the cops were looking for his mother because she was dealing drugs and they put a gun to his head. Wow. And so some dramatic stuff. So they thought it was a little too similar, which is why our story is, our book, which is why Rising Above is 11 athletes, not 12, because they took okay. out Sergio Aguero uh, sort of the last second. So it was a question of finding one of everything, one of different kind of challenge, physical, emotional, you have somebody like Shane Battier who grew up with mixed racial parents and that affected him in, in different ways. So, again, we tried to get different types of challenges and setbacks that they overcame. Yeah. How do your boys feel now that this book is actually, like, it's, been, it's accomplished, it's done, it's out? Like, how do, your, how do your boys feel about it? I think they're proud. I think they're happy with it. They're, you know, focused on school. <laughs> so they're not as focused on this as, as I am. But, they, you know, they're kids still, so they've got uh, games to play and, and test to take, but uh, they're, 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 they are proud. They are proud. Awesome. Greg, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's really, you're just an incredible person, an incredible writer. I, I love sports. So I'm thrilled that you ventured uh, away from uh, a little bit away. I love finance too, but I'm, I'm yeah. thrilled that you've, uh, that you've kind of uh, brought this offering. You know, I think it's going to have a great impact on so many young adults and, and adults as well. And just keep up the great work, and thank you so much. Again, and you, where the book is available, I presume on Amazon, other places, your website? Sure, Barnes & Noble, definitely, yeah. So we'll check any of those places out. And I'm a big big fan of yours, so keep up the good work as well. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great day. Sure. Be well. Thank Bye-bye. you. That was Greg Zuckerman of the Wall Street Journal. Really, really inspiring person. And just so incredible to hear about so many of the athletes that we look at, you know, we look at in the news on a day-to-day basis, and we marvel at their talents and their accomplishments, and they're at the top of the world, particularly people like LeBron and Steph Curry. But yet to remind ourselves of a very, very fundamental principle which ties in to the theme of our podcast, which is that we're almost there, and that all these people that appear to be there, they still have greater heights that they want to traverse and that they weren't always there and that they had a long journey and they had to be patient and they had to persevere 
and they live purposeful lives focused on attaining their goals. You hear about Steph Curry, about his dribbling and some of these amazing things. And I'll just end this podcast with one particular insight. As I mentioned, I am, uh, I am a rabbi. So just one particular insight from, uh, from the Torah. There's a verse in the, in, the, in the Old Testament that says, Sheva yipol tzadik v'kam, that the righteous individual falls seven times but ultimately gets up. And a great Jewish scholar commented that this verse is not just describing something that just happens to happen, like, yeah, like the person, the righteous man falls seven times and he manages to get up. He explained in a much deeper fundamental way that because the person stumbled seven times, that's what enabled them to get up ultimately on the, on the eighth attempt. And we have to remind ourselves that nobody's born perfect, nobody's born completely righteous, that everybody has to work incredibly hard with the God-given talents that they've been invested in to hone them, to cultivate them. But like we said, we can't do it all by ourselves. We gotta have a mentor, as, as Greg mentioned as well, that many of these athlete, great athletes and many incredibly successful people have had mentors who have helped them along their path. I hope you're gonna to continue to join me as we have these podcasts, which will hopefully be on a weekly basis based around a theme of we're almost there. And each week, hopefully, we'll be interviewing different personalities, new people that you can hear about their life experiences, how they'll share their vulnerabilities, and how they overcame challenges, just like Greg spoke about becoming a great writer. He's, a, he's written numerous books, best-selling books, writes for the Wall Street Journal, and yet he shared with us very poignantly that he wasn't always a great writer. So hopefully, this podcast is going to provide a tremendous amount of inspiration, and I look forward to continuing to share ideas with you. If you want to get a copy of, of my book, We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose, you can go to www.rabbidovidmcohen.com. It will be very helpful in terms of following along with the podcast because we're going to be focusing on different sections of the book and trying to have guests that are going to be intertwined or to fit thematically or conceptually with the different sections of the book. I wish everybody a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being in touch soon. Bye-bye.